I want to invite you to join me in turning with, turning with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 16 for our time of study in God's Word. And the question before us this morning during this time is, what do you do, what do you do after you've proclaimed the good news of salvation in Christ to someone, they've believed it, and you've even gone further and explained in some of the details. You've explained how the gospel works, how it doesn't work, what it is, what it isn't. You've given some pretty thorough teaching. What do you do then? What do you do once you've shared the gospel, we might say, and it's been believed and there's been some maturity, kind of understanding how it works? Then what do you do? Well, if you're the Apostle Paul, you warn is what you do. What an interesting way for Romans to come to a conclusion. A book that's all about the gospel, the good news that God saves rebels, He saves sinners. Only by His grace, only through faith, in His Son and only in His Son. It can be applied only through the power of the Spirit because it's only by grace. Romans is about that. It's about good news. It's about something that is utterly and completely positive. The good news of salvation in Christ. But it ends with a stern, forceful, intense warning. And if you're the Apostle Paul, that is exactly what you do when you're done telling about the good news in Christ. You've got to warn because there are always going to be threats and challenges to that good news message. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning in Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. And as we do so, as we look at these, this gospel warning, we'll be able to observe five features of it. Five features of this gospel warning. If you're wondering what this has to do with Mother's Day, um, it has nothing to do with Mother's Day, other than I know with all of my heart this is the kind of sermon my mom would want me to preach if she were alive today. Um, to preach the Word. And uh, I love mothers, and I love my mother, and I want to honor mothers. But right now it's time for us to preach the Word to learn about the gospel, to learn about our responsibility, whether we're mothers or fathers or sons or daughters. This is for us as Christians. We want to exalt Christ by studying His Word right here and right now. And so I hope, maybe if I can spin it into a Mother's Day sermon, ha, ha, ha. This is what I would want from any Christian mother. And I would want from any Christian father for that matter. The first feature of gospel warning is the warning itself. Number one, the warning itself, and we'll invest the most amount of our efforts here with number one. It's found in verse 17, and let's go ahead and dive in. And with our seatbelts fastened, let's hear what he says at the end of this good news letter. He says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And that's what I call a warning. It's drop-dead serious. Earnest. Passionate. 
in light of this good news, let me warn you, is what he's saying. Not everyone who's wearing the jersey is on the team. Not everyone who's wearing our uniform is on our side of the war, is what he's saying, no doubt. Let's make some helpful, let's settle into this verse and this passage and and, and make what I hope would be some helpful observations so that we can find this into our life and meddling with our life and transforming our lives. And let's start by making the observation that this warning is a gospel-induced warning. It's a gospel-induced warning. And I say that, obviously, in light of the context of Romans, but even in particular, our passage tells us that it is, I think, by what it says at the beginning. Verse 17, I appeal to you. And you say, what does that have to do with being a gospel-induced warning? I think it is a a marker that this is to be done because of the gospel. It's gospel-induced because Paul has a habit of using that phrase uh, or those words to talk about what the gospel leads to. Remember back in Romans 12.1, it's a classic, famous passage. The gospel induces worship. He uses the same phrase where he says, I appeal to you. This is rational. This is reasonable. This is what the gospel does. Remember Romans 12.1 where he says, I appeal to you. Or the New American Standard that says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, in light of the gospel you've learned about, to present your bodies, all of you, as a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We learned in Romans 12, 1, where he says, I appeal to you. Logical consequence, supernatural consequence, in light of what Christ has done, boy, have your whole life be a life of worship for Christ. And now he does it again. Gospel-induced, not only worship, gospel-induced discernment. In light of the fact that God saves magnificently and wonderfully, and it's His work, yes, worship Him, but you also need to do something else. Be discerning. Be on the lookout. The gospel calls for you and for me to be discerning. Because if there is a true gospel, that means anything else is going to end up being a false gospel. So let's at least start by making that helpful observation. It's a call to discernment. Let's also acknowledge the fact that when he's, what he's getting at here is he, he's warning against something that's contrary to gospel doctrine. We see this in verse 17 toward the end where he says, uh, that which is uh, contrary to the doctrine or teaching, it could be translated, that you have been taught. Well, what is the doctrine or the teaching that you have been taught? Again, based upon the context alone, we'd say, well, that's gospel doctrine, gospel teaching. That's what Romans is all about. Even more particular, in chapter 6, he even uses a similar kind of phrase when he says the standard of teaching, Romans six seventeen, and he's using that as a phrase for the gospel. He calls it the standard of teaching, the standard of doctrine. So what are we talking about? What are we to be on the lookout for? Well, we're to be on the lookout for those who teach something that is contrary to Gospel doctrine, gospel teaching. Pretty straightforward. What is gospel doctrine? Well, I hope by now you know. I hope by now you know the gospel doctrine is what we've learned about, especially in the early chapters of Romans. If you're going to understand the gospel, you have to understand something about God's righteousness. And where that gets meddled with in God's justice, you're going to end up having a perverted gospel. 
You have to understand something about our sinfulness. And as soon as you start moving away from the fact that we are rebels worthy of condemnation from the just God, and you start meddling with that, you're going to meddle with the gospel. That would be contrary to gospel doctrine. And then you move into the work of Christ. We learned in Romans chapter 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, so on and so forth, that Christ died a substitutionary death, not merely as an example, though he was a great example. He died in our place, in our stead, for our sins, to justify us so that we're declared perfect in the eyes of God even though we're not that Jesus fulfilled the law, he did the right thing, ultimately all the way up to the cross, then he gave himself up for us, that he rose again from the dead. Gospel doctrine. You can maybe summarize gospel doctrine in Romans 5.1, right? It's all over the place in Romans, but Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have been justified. That means it's something that's been done for us. It's not something we do. And how does that happen? Justified, declared righteous by faith. As a result of that, or in consequence, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's good news. That's gospel news. That's gospel doctrine. And so when we're back in Romans 16, 17, where he's calling us to be on guard, to be on lookout, it's to be on lookout for those who promote something contrary to those things, contrary to biblical gospel doctrine that we've already learned about in Romans. It's kind of interesting. We'll get to this in a little while, but not only would it be just contrary to gospel doctrine, he further defines what he means and and uses some pretty harsh language. Later on in verse 19, which we'll get to, where at the end of 19, he calls us as believers to be innocent to what is evil. Well, that assumes that anti-gospel doctrine is evil. We need to be innocent of such things. So he's, he's using some pretty big words. In verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we'll talk about that verse in due time as well. But do notice, in the context, it would seem that Satan needs to be crushed because he's the one who's behind the perverted gospel doctrine that's being promoted. Connect the dots a little bit. We're to be on guard against that which is contrary to gospel doctrine, and we know it to be evil, and we know it to be satanically inspired. Pretty strong. Be on guard. Be warned. The warning is also personal, because he says in chapter 16, verse 17 again, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who... And then at the end of the verse, see there, avoid them. He's calling us to not be PC. If we're going to do this, we're not going to be politically correct. Because he doesn't say avoid just those philosophies that are nameless, just those teachings out there. He says avoid them. So now you've got to attach a teaching with a person or a movement. Be on guard, be warned, be on the alert. Watch out for them. There's a time and a place to know who you're talking about and not just speak in generalities. I like it that he left it pretty open-ended. If it's contrary to gospel doctrine, it's them. Avoid them. Maybe just a couple of more observations about this 
this opening warning. I think it makes a welcome point about unity. It makes a welcome point about unity because sometimes you hear people say that, that, that love unites but doctrine divides or something like that. And then maybe we pick up on it because we're not really thinking. And you know what? Doctrine can be divisive. You know the most kind of divisive doctrine? Anti-gospel contrary doctrine. It's very divisive and he's warning against that. Right? Notice even what he says. He says it right there in verse 17. Uh, those who cause divisions. They, these are divisive people and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Yeah, doctrine divides. Bad doctrine divides. He's assuming that good doctrine unites. Good gospel doctrine pulls us together and we're on the same page. So even we as a church, and I'm going to use gospel shorthand for Romans, Romans shorthand, but I can say we, we confess together that we believe that God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. That unites us. That's doctrine teaching, gospel teaching that unites us together and we say amen, we confess these truths. Doctrine should unite. The kind of doctrine that divides is anti-gospel doctrine and we would want to shun that because that will split us. So I welcome this helpful statement regarding unity. And maybe just one more observation before we jump into some application as if this isn't applicable already. Please do notice that this is not written to pastors. The challenge to be on guard is not written to pastors. He says at the very beginning of the verse, right? The very beginning, I appeal to you brothers. Sometimes Paul writes letters or other apostles write letters to to leaders, elders, pastors. But sometimes they write letters to people like you and like me. That's what he means by brothers. Brethren and cistern. That doesn't sound good, right? It's bad, especially the way the Bible uses that. The idea is my fellow believers in Jesus. I want to make sure that I drive that home today and encourage you with that and say, please don't say, yeah, theology is for pastors. Doctrine is for pastors. This is a call for you, whether you're young or old, smart or just run-of-the-mill intelligent, no matter who you are. If you're a Christian, brothers, then what does he say? Watch out for those. Avoid them. Be the watchman. Believers in Christ need to be the watchmen on the wall. Believers in Christ need to be those who have a ministry of, what does he say, avoidance? Watch out for them. And that's your responsibility. It's my responsibility too. But it's your responsibility. And I know that we like to say, and I like to say, you know what, we want to be a ministry that is about what we're for and not just about what we're against. I'll amen that. But if you are for the gospel, you are against anti-gospel perversions. And so to a certain degree, we have to have a ministry. We, not just corporate church, though we'd want to have that. We, not just pastoral staff, though we want to have that. We, as in Christians, 
watching. Does it fit with sound gospel doctrine? Does it fit the shorthand at least? Don't take my word for it, but it's my shorthand version of what we've been learning. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if not, you have a ministry. It's called a shunning ministry. Avoid them. Turn them off. Pretty intense, huh? It's, this is one of the things the gospel elicits, the gospel fosters. If there really is a gospel, you'll worship if you've experienced God's saving grace. If there really is a gospel, you'll not only worship, you're called to be discerning, eyes open, paying attention, not leaving it up to others to do it for you. The doctrine that you have been taught, no doubt the doctrine he's laid out in the book of Romans. Let me ask you then, if you're going to write this down, and you might even want to write it down, if you're going to write down what the gospel is, What are you going to write down? You cannot be a watchman, which the Bible calls you to be if you're a Christian, and you cannot avoid if you don't know what the gospel is. I'm certain that some of you don't know what it is. Or if I tell you what the gospel is, a lot of you will say, I believe that. But just right now, in the uncomfortable silence of the room, if you're going to write down what the gospel is, no promptings, you just got to have to write down what the gospel is. If you can't do that, I know you can't be the kind of watchman or watchwoman that you need to be. Because you don't know the real thing. And you can't avoid it. And therefore, you are in a bad spot. So I'm not trying to shame you or guilt you, or maybe I am. If you say you're a Christian, you should know what the gospel is. You should be able to write it down in one sentence. Feel shamed if you can't do it, and I'll help you do it. Okay? So don't leave. You're at the right place to be shamed. There's encouragement and help. Paul's assuming they know what the gospel is because they've received gospel doctrine. The gospel is the good news. Heralded, okay? It's an announcement of something that's already been done by someone else, so it doesn't include you until you come to application. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived a righteous life in obedience to the law of God for us because we are lawbreakers. Okay? He fulfilled the law. His life counted. There's a reason why he lived those years in submission to the law. He was earning righteousness for us so that we could be justified. Okay? So Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the law. Gospel. It's that comma... It is the good news that Jesus died a sinner's death, even though he never sinned. He died a substitutionary, atoning death. You don't have to use the big words, but I'm trying to use an economy of words. Comma, and, if you will, and that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. That's the good news. That's the gospel. I didn't even say believe. 
That's the command that is issued because of the gospel. We tell people to believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news about what's been done outside of you. What Christ has done. And then we do command people and we say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we say, repent, believe. I so badly want you to be able to write that down. I so badly want you to be able to know and understand that. So that when you hear bestseller types of people say good things, but when they call them the gospel and they're not, you say, I'm on guard for that. And I'm going to avoid that. Good things like this, best-selling things like this, the gospel is following Jesus. Good thing? That's a good thing to follow Jesus. I'm all for it. I do a whole sermon series on it. The gospel is not following Jesus. If the gospel were following Jesus, then why did he die? The gospel is not following Jesus. Following Jesus is what you do because of the gospel, in light of the gospel, because in believing in Christ, you you have your life changed and you're grateful and you want to follow him. But if you think the gospel is following Jesus, you totally don't get it and you are going to be sucked right in. You can't be the watchman. We didn't learn in Romans that the gospel is following Jesus. As much as I'm for following Jesus... Another best-selling type might say this, the gospel is putting God first. Is putting God first a good idea? It's a good idea, but it's not the gospel. If the gospel is putting God first, then we wouldn't need Christ to do what he did for us. Another best-selling idea is the gospel is the tool God gives us to help us to live a joy-filled life. I want to have a joy-filled life. And if you believe the gospel, guess what? The Spirit of God indwells you. The Spirit of God is what applies the work of Christ to your life to begin with. And you have the Spirit of God. And guess what? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. But don't confuse the fruit, the, 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 the produce, if you will, with the essential nature, we might say, the root, if we wanted it to rhyme. Or another bestseller type would say the gospel is the call to live for the glory of God. I'd love to do a sermon series on the glory of God. I have before. I'm all for challenging you to live for the glory of God. But if you hear the gospel is living for the glory of God and you sign off on that, you totally don't get it. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be nice. The good news that Jesus Christ did it all. And then we're called to believe that. And then we're called to live in light of that, a life of gratitude and joy, spirit-empowered. You see the difference? Please see the difference. It's crucial that we get it because then he he receives all the glory, by the way. And then you can do your duty as a Christian. In fact, you'll want to do your duty. You'll say, sign me up for the Watchtower. Not the Watchtower Track Society. (laughs) There were Jehovah's Witnesses here first hour, interestingly enough. Please get it. Please get the gospel. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying those other things aren't important, but those are the byproducts. Those are the supernatural results 
But if you're not getting it at this level, you are going to be easy pickings. You just are. Because we haven't established the most basic thing first. I would like to talk about this in my whole life. I think I do talk about this my whole life. Don't take my word for it. Go back to Romans 3. Go back to Romans 4. Go back to Romans 5. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and see that the gospel is the good news about what Christ has done. God in Christ for us, applied by the Spirit. It's all His work, not ours. You see, our greatest threat, in my opinion, is not the secular culture. Ooh. Our greatest threat ends up being the satanic-inspired anti-gospels coming from people that wear our jerseys. Be on the lookout and avoid them. And by the way, you can have a great ministry in people's life if you do this. You're going to be able to help people. Maybe just one more thing. Um, You guys don't have to pay extra for this, but I forgot it first hour. Um, It slipped my mind. Just do notice that, that Paul's talking about people. Doesn't he say, where is it? Do notice that he does refer to these people in verse 17. These are people who cause divisions and create obstacles. These are the leaders. This is not your neighbor who has been misled by a false gospel. So therefore you need to avoid them. These are the causers. It's healthy and good to know that and remember that. Lest you isolate yourself from everyone who's confused about the gospel. And that's not what we've been called to do. Remember how Jesus treats Pharisees versus how he treats the Samaritan woman, for example. And you do see a difference. He calls both of them wrong. But there's kindness and generosity and love and compassion with the Samaritan woman. And there's anything but that toward the Pharisees. Because they're peddling their wares. Can I take a breath? We can move on. I just want to stay here and live here and have us understand this. Ask each other what the gospel is. Talk about the gospel. Don't assume the gospel. Okay, let's move on. A second feature of gospel warning is explanation. It's an explanation of the warning. It's in verse 18, and he explains himself a little bit for our benefit. And he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, literally their own bellies. Purposely using the contrast, they don't serve the Lord, right? They don't serve the Lord Christ, the the, the King, the Sovereign One who should be served. Instead, they serve themselves. They serve their own bellies. There's one thing worse than a bottom dweller, or it's a belly dweller. What are they all about? They're about their own appetite. And you say, but you know what? I know it's a little off, but they're really nice. They've got a million-dollar smile. They've got a huge ministry. Or they've got a tiny ministry, and they give all their money away. You know what? If it's contrary to gospel doctrine, it's a belly ministry. It is about self It is about self. It is about self. It is about self. And you say, but I don't think so. They seem sincere. The Bible says it's a belly ministry. Maybe self-promotion because look at me, meek and mild. I'm so humble. I give everything away. Belly ministry. 
or look at me, millions and wealth and riches or anything in between. What are we called to be watching for? Do they seem sincere? Uh, that's not really the litmus. Did they seem to give everything away? That's not really the litmus. Did they seem to have everything, so that must be God's blessing? That's not really the litmus. We're watching for, is there gospel doctrine that is the gospel doctrine we received? And if it ain't there, it ain't gospel, and it ain't right. It's a feeding self, 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 self. So I want to encourage you to use the Bible's litmus and not some other litmus because otherwise we're going to be misled. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 regarding people who had strong Judeo-Christian values and were externally doing the right things. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Philippians chapter 3, it was, yes, believe in Jesus and do these things and then God will accept you. And they were the right-wing conservatives. And they served their bellies because they pervert the gospel. You need to know that. What a great contrast it is when we go back to chapter 16, verse 1. Earlier on, a couple of weeks ago, we learned about this woman named Phoebe. Phoebe is called in chapter 16, verse 1, a servant of the church. I think we should notice the purposeful contrast. She's a godly woman who serves the church in the efforts of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a contrast Phoebe is from those who serve their own appetites. They serve their own bellies. Phoebe, who's she? Well, she's just a servant of Jesus. (laughs) How much better to be that than a servant of yourself in the name of Christianity? False teachers are self-servants. How do you know a false teacher? They vary from sound gospel doctrine. They deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then, verse 18 says, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're good talkers. Reminds me of the infomercials and the television commercials. You know, they're going to always have somebody who's got a Scottish accent or something. I have a rule of thumb. If they have a cool accent, don't believe anything they say. (laughs) Because they're so believable and I like to listen to them. My my brother's ordination, they said, is there anything we could do to help you with your ministry that you could see as an incentive to your ministry? He said, a Scottish accent. (laughs) Then I wouldn't trust him. You know, there's just something about somebody who's just a good talker or they've got a great accent. And you realize I'm saying this pretty much in fun. I don't think Paul's talking about accents here. He's talking about people that can talk a good talk, whether it's in your vernacular or somebody else's. They're smooth talkers and flattery. They deceive. They tell you, how about maybe, you know what, you're, not, you're a good person. And you're so good and so special to God. <laughs> and you're so helpful and so good that, that, that God responded in love and sent His Son Jesus for you. Well, that's to be watched out for and that's to be shunned. 
Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or it might be a different kind of flattery. But we know this kind of flattery goes on all the time. I remember years ago hearing Alistair Begg preach in chapel at seminary where I went. and He said, you know, compliments are like perfume. It's okay to sniff it, but don't drink it or it'll kill you. <laughs> Not entirely related, but somewhat. You know, people encourage you. I like to be encouraged. I like people when people say nice things to me, and I like to say nice things to other people. But sometimes false teachers are saying nice things to you because they have an agenda. They have a belly-driven agenda because somehow by stroking your ego, it's going to fill their pride bank, if not their bank. We just need to know that. We need to be aware of that. And they do this to the hearts of the naive. People who are naive about the gospel, they all of a sudden don't know any better, so they deceive. They seem nice, they seem sincere, but they deceive. Again, verse 19 is going to say they're evil. Verse 20 is going to imply they're satanically inspired. Let's move on to number three. A third feature of gospel warning is encouragement. It's encouragement, but it's kind of an exhortation too. He encourages, but like Paul does a lot, he encourages them, and then all of a sudden he puts a comma and says, but. So let's make up a word. The word for point number three is encourage ortation. Okay? Uh, encourage ortation. He's going to encourage, and then he's going to exhort them. New word for the day. Um, I'll tell you what I said the first hour. Uh, I'll, I'll pay you if you use it at Subway today in a sentence. Exu- I can't even say it. Egg, what was it? Encourage ortation. And by the way, if you go to Subway today, it's Mother's Day. You're a total loser. You should pay me. So, <laughs> strike that. <laughs> now, now back to what we need to talk about. Unless mom loves Subway. And then we have a special counseling class for her. Um, <laughs> encourage ortation. Here it is. Verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. In Romans 10, 16, he talks about obedience to the gospel. So I think that's how he's using it here. You know, everybody knows that you guys have obeyed the command of God to believe the gospel. You guys are believers, affirmed. This is great. Your church has a great testimony for being a gospel-believing church. And you're feeling affirmed. They should be feeling affirmed. So he says, so that I rejoice over you. Good job. This is commendable. This is great. But... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We might say discerning. Great that you believe the simple, basic gospel. That is how it works. But you better be discerning too. This echoes, uh, I think, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, I believe it is. Yes, verse 16. You'll know the phrase even if you don't know the reference. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We might say, Paul is saying, great job for believing the gospel. The work of the Spirit in your life. He'll be praised. Great job. But you need to have some gospel street smarts. You need to know a thing or two about heretics. I'm trying to help you along here. 
You need to not be, here's a great word for us to use in an evangelical context. You need to not be gullible. And it would seem evangelicals are some of the most gullible people alive in America today. If you want to swindle somebody, go for the evangelicals. They do it again and again and again. Just write some book using Bible verses. Talk about Jesus. Throw a bunch of sentimentalism in there. Maybe personal experience made up. And man, if you can find somebody to publish it, they're going to be selling it at the Christian bookstore. And before you know it, we're going to be wearing the T-shirts and we're going to have the jewelry on and we're going to start special groups to study your bad book. And before you know it, we're going to have leather-bound versions of your book and book markers and banners. And, and somebody says, um, <clears throat> uh, they get the gospel wrong in this book. Doctrine divides. <laughs> yeah, it does divide. Satanically inspired, evil doctrine divides. And your challenge and my challenge is to be gospel street smart. And we're on the wall looking because there's a place for avoiding. And just because they say Jesus and just because they sell it at the local Christian bookstore doesn't mean anything. We need to know this. Because of the gospel, it induces this desire for discernment. I have a couple of real-life illustrations to add to the one that I just mentioned. One would be, I hear this in the hallways at Omaha Bible Church even sometimes, and Christians are trying to be discerning, good job, and the conclusion ends up being something like, well, you know what? They're, they're really godly. They give away all their money. It's, not, it's a, non, a non-profit kind of venture. And so you know what? It's good. There's never been a scandal. They have financial accountability, whatever it is. And I say good job trying to be discerning, but please remember the litmus isn't that. The litmus isn't external righteousness. The litmus is the gospel. Remember the Pharisees? Remember that Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 5, I think it is. Now, we all know there was corruption on the inside. We all know that there was perversion on the inside. But for the, for the most part, from what we can tell, they had it together on the outside. And so don't have your litmus be, do they seem to live an out, upstanding external moral life? Now, you could apply the opposite litmus. When somebody says the right things and their life looks like the devil, there's a problem. But please remember, just because somebody's doing the right things externally and they've stayed married and they've stayed faithful and they seem to raise their kids with good values and they haven't embezzled money before and all this kind of stuff, that's a good ministry. Your litmus isn't the biblical litmus. They might just be good Pharisees got to remember that. Maybe another real life illustration would be when we say, well, I talked to so-and-so and I talked to them and I wondered where they were coming from and they told me they believe the Bible at their church. Oh, great. You pretty much won't find a heretic throughout church history that didn't say they believe the Bible. And for the most part, every heretic in church history said they believe the Bible and only the Bible. So... 
Now what? They say they believe the Bible, so you think they're a Christian. I believe the Bible. I say it. Doesn't mean I do. I can make the Bible say anything. I don't think in context. But we need to be careful to not be so gullible. Oh, yeah, they believe the Bible. Well, pretty much everybody else says that too. What do they do with the Bible? You've got to be discerning about this stuff. Well, you know, in Omaha Bible Church, we're a Bible-only people. Oh, so we're the right ones. Well, you know what? Who hasn't said that? Well, some haven't, and they've been wrong. But the point is, most people have said that. I do want to be a Bible-only person. I want to say I believe in sola scriptura, Bible alone, ultimate source of authority. I'm totally there. But just saying that, you've got to do some more looking. You've got to say, Pastor, what is the gospel? You've got to say, what, what, what does this church believe and teach about the doctrine of justification? What does this church believe and teach about the work of Christ? What is your theory of the atonement? How do you understand God's justifying work and God's uh, God's sanctifying work. And all you're doing is you're pushing gospel-related buttons to figure out if they truly believe the gospel doctrine that was delivered. So let's be discerning. Let's take this to heart. Let's be serious about this with a little word of encourageration. It's good to believe the gospel You've got to have some street smarts. You've got to know error at least to a certain degree. And I'm totally there that the best way to spot error is to know the truth. I'm totally there. But sometimes we use that as an excuse. We don't really know the truth. And then somebody says something that sounds kind of like the truth and we buy it. I remember one time, a long time ago, there were some people at the church and they were so excited to tell me one Sunday that Mormons are Christians too. And I was excited to listen to what they said. It's so amazing. These nice young Mormon men came to our house and they talked to us. And do you know they believe the Bible is the word of God? Tell me more. Do you know they believe in Jesus? Do you know they believe in grace, faith? Yeah, I do, I do know that. And they deny the eternality of God. and the unique sonship of Jesus, and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Know the gospel and have some street smarts. That's where we need to be. And you can use other religions as well. I'm not trying to purposely pick on Mormons. Apathy is deadly. How about this? Moms and dads, let me challenge you. Grandparents. Do your kids know what the gospel is? If you ask your son or daughter, can you tell me what the gospel is? Do they know what it is? Can, can, can they maybe even find their way around the Bible a little bit? Or are you just ready to send them off, move out of the house? Because after all, they've been raised in your home. After all, they've gone to Omaha Bible Church. Do they know, how about, do they know some, something of theology? Okay, we believe the Bible, Omaha Bible Church. Do they, do they know something about how it works? Or are you just ready to launch them off? We're getting ready to have graduations, right? 
great days. Please, before they leave, please ask them what the gospel is. Please help them to think that through if you haven't already. I hope you have. And you might not want to know. Right? You might be a grandparent thinking, if I ask this question, this is going to be bad. Because then I'm going to have to talk to my son or daughter and there's going to be some splaining to do. Well, maybe it'd be good if there was some splaining. <laughs> what is the gospel? Is the gospel that we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I don't think so. As good as it is that we should do that, that's not the gospel. As you can tell, I'm burdened about this. I think it's appropriate to be burdened about this. Apathy is going to be deadly. Our world is filled with spiritual perverts. And if I know there's a true pervert in my neighborhood, I'm not sending my kids over there. In fact, I'm telling them where they live so they don't go by there. Our world is filled with spiritual perverts and it's not loving to not tell your kids what the gospel is and to tell them to be on the lookout. On the wall. Look at. Okay, let's move on. Number four and five, we'll do these quickly. Number four, fourth feature is promise. It's promise. Fourth feature of gospel warning is promise or ultimate encouragement. It's found in verse 20. And it says in verse 20, the God of peace, the God of shalom, the, the God who justifies and gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your, I love it, I have to do it, foot. Wish I could put my microphone down there. Knowing me, I'd miss. Keep it in the context of gospel perverts. Keep it in the context of, you know what? This is a drag. This is a drain. Why is it that all of this stuff is happening? Why are there all these isms? Why is there sacramentalism? Why is there Gnosticism? Why is there legalism? Why is there antinomianism? And they, some of these isms claim my friends. Not to mention family members. Not to mention church members. Where is there hope in all of this? Because there are so many perversions around. And this gives us balm. This gives us help. This gives us encouragement. And that's why he says what he says. I would take it in this context. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So good. You say, that sounds kind of triumphalistic. Yeah, it does. Isn't it good? (laughs) Through Christ, we triumph. Satan loses in the end. It's awesome. One New Testament scholar put it this way in light of the close context. The victory over those Satan-inspired heretics is what we have here. Yeah, they deal us fits. I'm tired of being on the lookout. One day we won't have to be. And he even uses that word soon. That's used oftentimes in light of prophetic things. You know what? It might not be tomorrow, but it could be tomorrow. And that day is coming. And that day is so sure because of what Christ has already done that we can have true, genuine expectancy. We can have true, genuine hope. And it's coming. It's coming. Hang in there. It's going to be soon. Do it another day. 
Watch for another day. Avoid for another day. It's meant to encourage us that in the end, Jesus wins. I think it's funny when people say, yeah, what's the theme of the book of Revelation? Yeah, Jesus wins. Well, you know what? It is. Turn to Revelation 19. Let's see how this fleshes itself out. Revelation 19 and 20. I think you have to interpret Romans chapter 17, verse 20 in this kind of sense. On my own, I don't really have some promise that, it's, that I can anticipate where I myself am going to stomp on Satan's head, as much fun as that might be. Um, but when, we, when Christ returns to put down all opposition justly, the Bible does indicate that we'll be with him. And as Satan is sentenced one final time, no more isms that are satanically inspired. We're going to be with him, and we rejoice in that confidence. In the end, the people of God win. In the end, Christ wins, and we're united with him. And so let's be encouraged by Revelation 19, verse 11, where it says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. I think that's really important because if it's me judging, it won't be perfect righteousness. But when he comes, it's in righteousness. It will be fair, utterly fair, utterly just. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I take it that's the redeemed people. I take it that I plan to be part of it. And you would be planning to be part of it as well if you're a believer in Christ. White and pure because of him, because his is bloodstained. We're following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Not the little Machaira sword in Ephesians for perhaps last resort defensive fighting. This is the big blade. This is offensive battle. This is devastation kind of sword. With which to strike down the nations. Remember this is happening in righteousness according to verse 11. To strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the devil, verse, oh, excuse me, sorry, I'm jumping to chapter 20. Drop down, so we see that, we see returning with him, that unites us with him. But that's going to lock into place what is going to happen just a spell later, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So sometimes the Bible says things like, come Lord Jesus. It's our word Maranatha. When you're tired of the isms that claim your family members, that meddle with your life, that drain our time and our energies, and they are so devastating so many times, I would want to find myself ultimately saying, amidst the lookout, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, please stop the satanically inspired evil-isms. 
And it's hopeful that they will one day stop. And they will one day be over. But the day hasn't happened yet. And so what are we doing? We're called to be on the watch. And to be shunning. In the meantime, that's one of the ministries we have. When it's going to happen, we don't know. He just says soon. And so there's anticipation. We might be able to go back to Genesis 3 and see the the prefiguring of all of this happening. We won't take the time to do it. Number five, finally, we'll just read it and have it be the closer. The fifth feature of gospel warning is a Christian well-wishing. It's a a wish, it's a hope, it's a Christian greeting, really. But at the end of verse 20, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My only question is, what else could sustain this? Right? Right? Be on guard, be on the lookout, be on the watchtower looking for gospel perverts. Shunning them. Well, Lord, there seems to be so many of them. Well, what else could sustain us? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you because that's what's going to empower it. Ultimately, Holy Spirit empowered. When you preach the gospel and somebody believes it and you help them understand some of the what it is and what it isn't, how it works and how it doesn't work, then what do you do? Well, then worship is the natural response. And then what do you do? If you're like Paul, you warn. These are not peace times. Isn't it interesting? Last thing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Sometimes... Violence is the means to peace. Not if I'm in charge of the war, because I'm a fallen human being. But when you're talking about the infinitely righteous God, violence against Satan, the father of all isms, brings peace to us. And we anticipate that peace, and so we rest in that peace. Gospel peace. God is to be praised. And we praise Him even by being faithful discerners, not heretic hunters. We love Christ, therefore we hate heretics. (laughs) But we're busy loving Him doing ministry. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time together and thanks for interaction that we would have uh, on this day, on this Mother's Day. We're grateful for our moms. And uh, Lord, I pray that You might encourage them, encourage those um, who've lost their moms, uh, encourage those who would love to be a mom and have never been able to be a mom, uh, encourage them as well. You are the God of all comfort and you encourage us and we have so much to be focused on when it comes to your glory and your grace and the gospel and our responsibility to not only worship but also to be on the lookout. Lord, help each of these kinds of people to focus on what's most important. Your glory and your honor, the great and gracious, loving and sovereign God. In whose name we pray, amen.